0: What is the true nature of salvation? I want you to consider how you would answer that question if you were asked, what's the true nature of salvation? What is it that most fundamentally changes about someone and in someone when they are saved? The book of Romans that we are studying through is about the universal human need for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, that need even included the Jews who God had chosen in the Old Testament as his covenant people. Last week, Paul exposed the false security the Jews put in their godly heritage and their possession of the law. Today he's going to turn to the other big aspect of their false security, the covenant sign of circumcision. And then he's going to explain the fundamental nature of salvation that most of his fellow Jews had missed. To see that in the passage, we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at false security and heart surgery. False security and heart surgery. Now for our first main point, I want us to consider two questions. And question number one is why was circumcision such a big deal? Why was circumcision such a big deal? It was so highly valued by the Jews that it's almost impossible for us to grasp how provocative and offensive Paul's statements would have been in this passage to to some of his original hearers. Now, some of you here, especially some of you children, you might be asking yourself, what is circumcision? And that is a good question. To put it delicately, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of a male's reproductive organ. If that doesn't help you, then I'd say, ask your parents at lunchtime. It'll be a great, great conversation to have. (laughs) Circumcision, though, it was a huge deal. And the reason is that it was the specific sign that God had given to Abraham to mark the covenant between him and his descendants. Any foreign man who wanted to convert and worship along with the Jewish community was required to be circumcised and receive that sign first. There are apparently many reasons that God chose circumcision for the sign of his covenant, but one of them is that it was a picture of the curse that would come to any Jewish man who refused to receive the sign of the covenant. Listen to Genesis seventeen fourteen. This is God speaking to Abraham. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the idea is if you won't have this part of your body cut off, if you reject that, then you should be cut off. You will be rejected from the community. Because of that, many many Jews, they thought that possessing this external sign was proof that they'd be welcomed into God's kingdom. In their minds, if you had Jewish circumcision, you were automatically in God's kingdom. And if you were uncircumcised, you were automatically out. But that is a backdrop. It's easier to appreciate the bombshell verses 25 through 27 would have been. Paul says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision." So Paul is saying here that instead of ensuring salvation, circumcision is equivalent to uncircumcision if it doesn't affect the Jews' lives. To state it as an equation the way one commentator did, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision in the sense that that you're not truly a part of God's people. Now, this should not have been new to the Jews because the same truth was emphasized multiple times in both the the Old Testament law and the prophets. For the sake of time, I'll give you just one example from Jeremiah 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. So just this one verse is clear that the outward, external sign, that wasn't going to protect you from punishment, from God's wrath. And so verse 26 is completely consistent with the Old Testament teaching on circumcision. However, the rest of the passage, it introduced a new and radical thought to the Jews, and that is that uncircumcised Gentiles that many of them despised and looked down on, those Gentiles would sit in judgment over them someday if they kept the law and the Jews didn't. This was a horrifying thought in the minds of the Jews. And to put it as an equation again, uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision or evidence that, that one is truly a part of God's kingdom. The implication is that it didn't matter before God if one was circumcised or not. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen In the New Testament, he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, for most of you, probably most in, in our culture, the first statement there is not controversial. Like most people, they're not waking up wondering like, am I okay with God? I haven't been circumcised or vice versa. Like I am circumcised, I'm, I'm good to go. That's not the way that we think. But it, it hits closer to home if you just change one thing. Replace circumcision with baptism. See, there are millions and millions and millions of people around the world that believe if you've been baptized as a baby or baptized at some point in your life, then you are good with God. You're good to go because you have been baptized. Now, is that true? No. The scriptures are so clear. No ritual can save us. But at the same time, for those of you who are Christians, is baptism irrelevant? Well, no. (laughs) Many of you wouldn't be here if we weren't celebrating a baptism see, baptism cannot save you, and yet it's the first command given in the New Testament to followers of Jesus. It doesn't save you, but it's a public testimony that I have been saved by God. So if that's true, then how can Paul say circumcision, it doesn't matter if that was the sign of the covenant? Well, the reason is because between the old covenant and the new covenant, the sign of the covenant changed. In the Old Covenant, the sign was circumcision for all the Jewish males. But in the New Covenant, the sign is for men and women, all those who are followers of God, all those who know God. So it, it was important both in the Old Testament and then in the new, the new Testament. The Old and New Covenant, the sign of the covenant is a big deal because it identifies who are the people who are following God, who are the people who represent God on earth. And so both rituals assumed a commitment to obedience. And Paul, in this passage, he implies that obedience is the greatest evidence that one belongs to God. Now That brings up our second question, and it's probably already nagging in some of your minds. And that's the question, does anyone actually keep the law? Does anyone actually keep the law's requirements, like Paul mentions in verse 27? Most evangelical Christians, probably most of you, would answer, No, of course no one keeps the law. And so it might surprise you that if you follow Paul's flow of thought from verse 27 into verses 28 through 29, Paul would answer the question, yes. Yes, some do keep the law. Verse 28 begins with the connecting word for, which explains the grounds on which an uncircumcised individual keeps the law. And so this isn't just a hypothetical scenario. Paul says there are people who truly keep the law, or more literally, that word is fulfill the law. They're people who fulfill the law. Now, this is an aspect of the gospel we considered two weeks ago, but it's often overlooked in our culture. And that's the reality that Christians obey Christ. Now, do Christians perfectly obey Christ? Of course not. Paul would be the first to say, no, no way. But at the same time, the Bible claims that true Christians, they have lives that are changed and characterized by a desire and a pattern of obedience to Christ. For example, Romans 8, later on in the book, Paul says, for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Did you see that? The reason the Son came, the reason the Son was a sin offering is that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us, in believers. walk by the Spirit. Jesus, Now, what are the, the law's requirements? That's the next question. What's the law's requirements? Well, Jesus summarized all the law in one word, love. He said, the law is fulfilled if you love God and you love your neighbor. Galatians regularly highlights this theme of the law being fulfilled by love in the life of a believer. Right after condemning those who try to be justified or saved by circumcision in the law, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. A few verses later, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. So those who love their neighbor, which in context is primarily other believers in Christ, it says those individuals, they fulfill or they keep the heart of the law. I could give more examples, but here's a final one from Galatians 6 2. carry one another's burdens. In this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. You see the, the theme here of love, salvation is more than just a get out of hell free card. Instead, it's all about coming into a relationship of love with God. And that relationship is intended to produce a supernatural community of people who genuinely love God and love one another. Now question, again, probably many of you are thinking is, where does that come from? What what produces that type of life that is so un, unnatural and foreign to us in our flesh? And the answer is in our second main point, heart surgery. Heart surgery. Look again at verses 28 through 29. See, here Paul, he, he explains both how the The circumcised and uncircumcised have the ability to fulfill God's law and can be recognized as part of the people of God. He says, for a person is not a Jew who's one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. The Pharisees and most of the Jewish nation, they had turned the law into a system that was consumed with the external. That's what Paul means when he says that they have the letter of the law. For example, listen to, to what Paul says in Second Corinthians 3.6. It's very similar. It says, he, God, has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Since I'm on a roll this morning with equations, let me give you one more, OK? Here's another equation to summarize what Paul is saying here. The law minus the spirit, the Holy Spirit, it equals the letter of the law. The idea is that when you have, when you have God's law, but you don't have God's spirit, it, it's reduced. What we do is we reduce it to just the external expectations, and we miss the whole point of the law. We miss the spirit of the law. Another way I've heard this illustrated before and found helpful is that when our flesh, when our sin nature, when it meets the law without the Holy Spirit, it creates a ladder. I have a picture here. And the idea is that when we hear the law, if we don't outright reject it, what we do in our, in our flesh is we turn it into a ladder to try and climb our way to God, to work our way to God by our obedience. We tend to, to put our, our confidence in ourself and in our own, in our own morality. I think the reason we do this, the reason we reduce the law to the external is similar to the Pharisees. Then we can feel in control of our lives. We can feel in control of God. If I do these good things, then God, he owes me certain things back. I think we do that because it it feeds our pride. We can feel superior to others, depending on how well we feel like we are keeping the external requirements. Do any of you struggle with reducing God's law to the external? I do. I know I do, and that can happen in many different ways. You know, it can be as simple as what I said earlier. The person who thinks I've been baptized, I'm good with God. It can also be church participation. People think I go to church every single week. I take communion every single week. I'm even a church member. Of of course I'm a Christian. In a church like ours, there could also be a temptation to maybe put your confidence in your discipline, your Christian disciplines or service. How often you read the Bible, how well you know it. How often you're involved in community group or involved in serving others. Even outreach to others, you can put your confidence in that. How many people do I invite to church? There are all kinds of different ways that we can put the focus on the external and have a false security in that, to build our identity in that. Now, we know that the law was never focused primarily on the external. We know that from a lot of different ways, but even just the Ten Commandments. When most people think the law, they think the Ten Commandments. Well, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? God said, you should have no other gods besides me. That's internal. The law was always concerned, first and foremost, about love and worship of God. And yet, as you follow the storyline of the Bible, it proves that no human being loves God naturally. We don't love God naturally. And instead, what sin does is it bends us inward. Instead of looking to life from God, we look to life from in ourselves or in, in our circumstances no, this all brings us back to, to Romans chapter 1. All humanity exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and because of that, we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Remember humanity's deepest problem? We said in Romans 1 that the heart of the problem is a worship problem in the heart. The Jews focus on the external instead of the heart. It led to a failure to recognize that, that salvation, it begins internally. Because of their focus on the external, they didn't admit their need for God to circumcise their hearts as the law and prophets revealed. And it would be an eternal tragedy if anyone here this morning made that same mistake. The big idea of this passage is that true salvation requires God to do a supernatural work in your heart by his spirit. If you're taking notes, I'll give that to you again. True salvation requires God to do a supernatural work in your heart by his spirit. This is something God does. And I say it's a supernatural work to emphasize this is something you need God to do for you that you can't do for yourself. Now, why is this important to understand? Well, there's a very common misconception that many people have about the gospel, and that is that you can independently make yourself a Christian. It's the idea that that becoming a Christian, it's primarily something that you do. This could be as silly as as saying, well, I just got on Facebook and I changed my profile, Christian now. Tattoo, John 3.16, Christian, right? (laughs) Like, those are obvious, you know, we we kind of laugh those off. But what about an altar call, walking down the aisle? Someone shares the gospel, Did, did you raise your hand? Even the sinner's prayer, I'm going to say a prayer. Now, have people been saved? by saying the sinner's prayer, of course, and walking down the aisle, of course. But the danger is the idea that we are the ones who make ourselves a Christian, instead of seeing those as as ways that we respond to the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are commanded to repent. We are commanded to believe. Our will is involved in responding to the gospel. But what we need to understand is that salvation is first and foremost about what God does in us on the inside, not what we do on the outside. One of the many passages that highlights this is Ezekiel 36. In this passage, God is promising he's going to bring his people who are in in exile back into the land. And then he gives them all of these incredible promises as well. He says, I'll also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all of your impurities and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you And cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This passage is almost certainly the one Jesus had in mind when he talked to Nicodemus about the need to be born again or born from above. And I want you to notice who's the main actor in this passage. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, I will cleanse you from all of your impurities, I will give you a new heart, I'll remove your heart of stone, I'll place my spirit within you. Five times in three verses, God says, I'm going to work. I'm going to work in you. Notice also that we need both the water and the spirit. In verse 25, the water is not just the forgiveness of our sins. It's the cleansing from the sin and the source of those sins, idolatry. This section has been all about idolatry and the power that it has on us. We need something to help break the power of idolatry in our lives. And what we need is the power of God. Now, how is that accomplished? Well, verse 26 tells us we need God to give us a new heart and a new spirit. How does God do that? Well, it's by taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Think about that picture for a moment. What does a heart of stone refer to? Well, it refers to something that's hard. It refers to something that's lifeless. Stone is lifeless. It refers to something insensitive to God, a heart that doesn't love him or worship him or desire to obey him. And God promises, I can take that heart, I can give you a new one, a heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. Now, the word flesh here is different than the New Testament word for flesh. It's not referring to the sin nature, but to something soft and something alive, something that's sensitive to God. But that makes total sense. If, if the heart of humanity's problem is a worship problem, problem in our heart, then what do each one of us need? We need a new heart. That's what human beings need. We need a new heart. And that's what God promises to give us. But how does he do it? Verse 27, by placing his spirit within us. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? God says, I will place my spirit within you. That's how you get the new heart that you need. It's by the indwelling of my spirit. And what does that produce? It says those who follow him and carefully obey his commands. In other words, people who fulfill the law to love. What each human being needs, then, is spiritual open-heart surgery. We need God to change us on the inside and give us a desire to worship and obey him that we don't have and that we can never manufacture on our own. This is the true circumcision Paul references in Romans 2, and I want us to, to see how Paul describes it. First, it's an internal work of God. According to verse 28, true circumcision is not a physical procedure done on the body. It's not done by human hands. It's one that God's spirit does in our inner world. Again, we see that the true nature of salvation, it's internal. It's this spiritual open heart surgery. Now, to illustrate our our need for God to act in salvation, consider this question. Can someone perform open heart surgery on themselves? Now, I'm not a doctor but I did stay at Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> no, just kidding. I, I did do two minutes of Google research, and I feel confident making the claim that you can't perform a successful open-heart surgery on yourself. You can definitely try it. People have tried some crazy things. People have tried a lot of crazy self-surgery. You could try it, but if it's gonna be successful, you need someone else to do it. You need someone else to perform it on you. And in the same way, Have you ever realized that you need God to do surgery on your heart? Have you ever realized that? Have you ever realized you need his spirit to work in your inner world and give you new spiritual life? This is why Paul says in Galatians 6.15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The external sign of the old covenant, he said that doesn't matter at all anymore. What matters is a new creation Becoming a Christian is far deeper than any external ritual like baptism or a lifestyle change like becoming a member of a church. It involves being born again to a new life with God by his spirit. Now, the, the sign of circumcision, another aspect of it is that it was meant to be irreversible. And I think that's one of many arguments that points to the reality Christians can't lose their salvation. It's not something that you can lose if you're genuinely a Christian because it's a work that God has done within you. Now, what is the evidence that Paul points to that someone has experienced this open-heart surgery, that someone has been saved by God? Well, based on verses 26 through 27, it's clear that a Christian will have a new life of obedience. As we mentioned earlier, that's not going to be perfect, but there is going to be a genuine desire to fulfill, not just the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. It's going to, to produce a new life of love within a believer. They'll begin to love God and his people. And this new lifestyle, these new relational priorities, they flow from a new desire for God's praise. Did you catch that in, in verse 29? This is the third thing I want to highlight. Paul says that this is what distinguishes, distinguishes a person whose heart has been changed by God's Spirit. He says, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who's won inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. Now what's the change that that brings? Paul says, that person's praise, the person with the circumcised heart, their praise is not from people, but from God. The circumcised in heart, their praise is not primarily from people now, but from God. This reminds me of a principle that I think relates here, and I'll explain that. And it's the principle that people's eyes change our lives. People's eyes change our lives. We react differently. We, we act differently when we know that people are watching us. One ridiculous example of this is, have you ever been driving? This happened to me recently. I was driving, and I was turning left, and I saw someone just digging in their nose for like a booger. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, like, whoa, you would, not, you would not do that if you were just sitting here in church with us, right? Now, some of you maybe have done that too. But the idea, we, we act differently when people, we don't think people are watching us. That's a ridiculous example. So let me give you another ridiculous example. Probably most of you have heard about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, their relationship, or at least their, their supposed relationship. There's people who think that, that, that it's all just hype. Because Ta- Travis Kelsey, he is a famous football player for the Kansas City Chiefs. Taylor Swift, obviously very, very famous. But their relationship has made them both much more popular. And the NFL loves it. The NFL is getting all kinds of publicity. And a couple weeks ago, uh, they even showed a stat that they're keeping track of how Kelsey performs with Taylor Swift in attendance. And then left to his own devices. (laughs) It's amazing. Now, for the record, I don't think that her attendance probably affects his play very much. But it does highlight this principle that all of us can appreciate. And that is that eyes change our lives. When people are watching us, it it changes how we live, especially when it's people you respect. When you're around someone that you really respect, it affects the way that you act. And this is the tie-in here to verse 29. Verse 29 is a concise and very precise statement about what distinguishes those who claim to be the people of God from those who are truly his. Whether it's an ethnic Jew versus, versus a true Jew in this passage or a professing Christian and a true Christian in our context, the biggest internal difference that Paul points out here is whose praise do you desire the most? Whose praise do you desire the most over time? Salvation produces a radical Godward reorientation of someone's life. He becomes a gravitational center where we want to, to please him. He's the one that we, we desire to please the most. And to, to see this in contrast, just think again about the Pharisees. Now they were intensely devoted to memorizing and studying the scriptures. They were so zealous about all the rituals and external commands and traditions, but why? Jesus said in Matthew 23, they love the praise of men. They love the praise of men. That's what motivated them. They love the respect and honor that their religious lifestyle brought them. They praise God with their mouth, but Jesus said their heart is far from him. Their heart is far from him. May God protect us as a church, that that would not be true of us. Listen to Jesus diagnose this problem in John 5. He's addressing the Jews here who are trying to kill him. He says, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe Since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Verse 44, I think, is a haunting question. How can you believe? Because you accept glory from one another, but you don't seek at all the glory that comes from the only God. It's a haunting question because all of us, to different degrees, we struggle with people-pleasing. It's haunting in that sense, but it also gives us a clue to our only hope. How can we be freed from the fear of man? How can we be freed from being dominated by worrying about the opinions of others? If we can't save ourselves and need God to change us and give us hearts the desire to please him, are we just helpless? Are we hopeless? The answer is yes and no. Yes and no. We are helpless and hopeless if we seek to save ourselves. But there is hope because God is gracious and he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're helpless on our own, but God provided a way to both save and sanctify those who believe. That's the connection to verse 44. Those who believe, they can be saved. They can be changed. But what do you have to believe? Well, remember what I said at the start, that those who rejected the sign of the covenant in the the Old Testament, they were to be cut off from God's people. Well, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, the way the law commanded. He was the only person to perfectly keep the entire law. He fulfilled both the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. He perfectly loved the Father. He perfectly loved others. Jesus deserved only glory and honor and blessing. And yet Jesus willingly chose the disgrace and the agony of the cross. He chose that knowing that he would be cut off from the Father's loving presence. Jesus died for my sin. He went to the cross to pay for all the times that I fail to love God and others, all the times that I seek the praise of men instead of the praise of God. I deserve to be cut off from God and his people forever. That's what I deserve. But Jesus was cut off for me. He was cut off for you on the cross. And he was cut off there so that the Holy Spirit could cut the hearts of men and women through the power of the gospel. When the, when the gospel was preached by Peter in Acts 2, do you remember how it impacted the crowd? They said, we're pierced in our heart. In our heart. We are cut to our core. And they cried out, what must we do to be saved? Well, the Bible would answer and say, there's no work that you can do to save yourself. There's no work that you can do to climb a ladder or make yourself right with God. But God has promised that those who repent and believe will be saved. To repent is to admit not just your sinful behavior. Almost everyone admits, yeah, I've done things that that I shouldn't, I've done things I feel guilty about. To repent is to admit before God, I'm a sinful being. I'm sinful to my very core. I deserve your wrath because of the way I've lived. There's nothing that I can do to save myself, nothing I can do to make myself right with you. And those who repent, they can turn, and they can actually trust in Christ. They can believe in Christ. To believe in Christ is to throw yourself on his mercy and grace. It's to trust that, that his work on the cross is your only hope. It's the attitude, Jesus, if you don't save me, I will not be saved. If you don't change me, there is no hope for change in my inner world. To believe is to trust Christ, not only to forgive your sins, but also to give you a new heart by his spirit. A heart that now seeks praise from him. So this message is not just for those who need to be saved. It's a message that continues to change us as Christians. As we praise God for the gospel, we'll see God continue to change where we seek to find glory and praise in our souls. Now, this is a whole other message. I could give you many examples from my life and others about this, but God has providentially allowed us to have two baptisms this morning. And so in a couple minutes, you're going to have a chance to hear the testimony of two believers whose hearts have been internally changed by the power of the gospel. So right there, let's go ahead and close the, ser- the, the message in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it does, it does expose us. It does expose our hearts. And God, I pray for each one. Here, I pray that, again, your spirit would take these truths and apply them to each one. If there's any who've never recognized their need for forgiveness, their need for what you did for them, if there's any whose faith has been in their own works, then God, help them this morning to turn to you. Help them to believe in you. And God, for those here who do know you, protect us, God, from, from God, unhealthy introspection, that it, it is easy to be discouraged when we look in and we see how we, as believers, still struggle with the fear of man, God, how we, we don't love you the way that, that we want to, the way that we should. But Jesus, we thank you that and in many ways that's the point of the cross. And we thank you, God, that, that as we remember your grace, as we remember the gospel, I thank you that's the thing that, that stirs up our hearts afresh. That's, the, that's what gives us the courage, Lord, to, to obey you and to seek praise from you, even even if that might be misunderstood from others. Even if that, that would uh, potentially hurt our reputation in the eyes of others, I thank you. It's your, your gospel. It's remembering what you've done for us that gives us the motivation, God, to obey you anyway, to seek the, the praise that comes from you, the praise that will last forever. And so, God, we do trust you. we to work in each one's heart here, and we pray this again in your great name. Amen.